Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. So the G7 is really the club of the world's richest democracies. And when it was set up back in the 1970s, it was the majority of the world's GDP. When these governments got together and decided on a policy, they really got to set the tone for the entire global economy. And it's just not that way anymore. I'm Annie Reese. This is Politico Dispatch. I'm sure a lot of people listening have seen the sound of music, and this is really the setting that we're in. Ryan Heath is in Germany right now. We are in extremely green meadows. There are literally cows at the back of the catering tent here at the press center. And it's just this picturesque town where it really looks like something that would be on a gingerbread house, something like that. At the G7 summit, where President Biden is meeting with leaders from Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the UK, and the EU. It's very fun, it's very cliched, and it's very removed from the rest of the world. It's like a parallel universe for Biden, where he's loved and admired here, and he doesn't have to deal with all of his domestic problems. But at the same time, none of the deals coming out of this summit are helping him solve his domestic problems. On the show today, Ryan on the fantasy of the G7 and why the elite group is starting to feel out of date. So you wrote that the G7 navel gazing is missing the mark, which were spicy words. So can you unpack that for me? Why is it missing the mark? It's probably missing in several ways. So I think the most important thematic way is that There are a lot of small announcements that dance around big issues, but don't really get to the heart of those big issues. And examples there include on climate change. So we have little things like the EU and the US agreeing a deal to have Americans send more smart thermostats to Europe. You know, no one can really argue against it, but why on earth Mm -hmm. are the world's most powerful people spending their time at a summit agreeing that? when they could be funding poor countries to do clean energy transitions, when they could be elevating their own climate targets and making them get to climate neutrality sooner. We look at something like the foreign infrastructure plan, uh, which is trying to create competition against China's Belt and Road Initiative. There's a big headline number, $600 billion, but absolutely no plan on where that money is going to come from, which isn't very helpful to the people that need that infrastructure. And then you look at something like food security, which was one of the big problems for Africa and the poorest countries in the world as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And the G7, which has the militaries and the money to figure out a way to provide military escorts to get that grain out of Ukraine via shipping channels in the Black Sea. They're not talking about that. They're talking about the less effective options of moving the grain by rail. And so I think that they're big on the small things and they're not really getting to the heart of the matter. And I think the other problem is that the leaders here are operating in their comfort zone. Mm. So they're happy talking amongst their best friends in the world and they're really afraid of engaging with the autocrats that they either need to come to agreements with or who they need to work with to solve global challenges like, like climate change. And what we're really seeing at this summit is a kind of shrinking of ambition of the G7 and a not quite acceptance of the reality that they need to engage with a larger group, like the group of 20 nations, the G20. 
They have invited some outsiders, including India and Indonesia, two of the three biggest democracies in the world alongside the United States. The African Union is represented here, but that just really goes to show that the G7 on its own can't do as much as it wants to do. But also those those partners have not been invited to all the special G7 events, right? Yeah, so these partners are coming in basically with a day pass. Like, these are the friends that you invite (laughs) into the country club, but they aren't the country club members. And that is obviously good because you want to be at the decision-making table. But these invited guests represent 3 billion people. They're four times the population of the G7 countries themselves. And they have to sit down the mountain two hours away from the main castle where everything's happening uh, at the kids' table, basically, for a special dinner that had a lot of pomp and ceremony, but wasn't the main game last night. Uh, They got invited up the mountain today. It's all smiles and, and, and friendliness in all of the photos. But if I was representing the African Union, I'd want a seat at this table all the time, or I'd at least want to be invited to the G20. And that's very different from the European Union, which gets fully integrated into the summit program, even though they're not voting members, which is also fully integrated into the G20. So it's this distinction between the rich, uh, older, advanced economies and the emerging ones. And it's really a gap that has to be dealt with. Otherwise, we're not going to get solutions to a lot of the problems uh, that the leaders talk about here. Yeah. So given that, why is Biden so much more invested in the G7? I think this is Biden's uh, real home court. These are people he's been dealing with, governments he's been dealing with really for his whole career. The whole 50 years he's been in the Senate or the White House. So it's understandable that you want to make democracies more resilient. You've got to secure your home base first before you really can negotiate from a position of strength with the Chinas and with the Russias of the world. But at some point, you've got to get out of the home court and do that negotiating and do that engagement. And that's going to be the next big challenge for Biden. We see him willing to do it with Saudi Arabia, a very unpleasant regime that he sees a point in negotiating with. And at some point, people are going to have to bite the bullet and do it with China and Russia. And one of those points is going to be the G20 summit, because both China and Russia are members. Uh, Putin has indicated he will be going to the summit. And that's going to throw up uh, some big, serious existential questions for the other democratic leaders. I'm also interested in talking about the timing of the G7 this year. It seems like it's been bad for the Biden administration. On Friday, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, which was, you know, news so monumental, it's overshadowed all other news, including that Biden signed gun control legislation over the weekend. And then he got on a plane to Germany to the G7, where there hasn't been as much news coverage. And it just seems to highlight this relatively powerless position that Biden finds himself in right now. Exactly. And you can see why he finds the G7 to be a comfort zone, because everyone here loves him. And they really did not like Donald Trump. And all these other leaders were among the first out of the gate of anyone to say that they thought it was terrible what the Supreme Court had done on Roe v. Wade. And he doesn't get that reaction back home. So when your approval rating is in the 30s at home and you can come here and get hugged and supported by everybody from around the world, you can see why there's an attraction to that. But it doesn't do anything to solve Biden's problems at home. They're not going to keep inflation under control. The only idea that's even vaguely going to keep inflation under control is an idea that Biden and the US government opposes. It's a French idea to put a price cap on oil 
all oil produced globally, which would hurt US oil producers amongst all the other producers around the world and would be very difficult to implement. So Biden is not going to come back with an inflation solution. He's not going to come back with a way to end the war in Ukraine. And he's not going to come back with solutions on climate or food security. And he's not going to come back with a way to legislate for gun control and abortion rights. So it's tricky. It's a lovely space for him to be in. And he's not going to get a better approval rating or win any new fans at home because of what he's doing here. Are there any other major news items or things that have really struck you from your time at the G7? One developing story that's caused a great deal of concern up the mountain here in Germany is around the bombing of the shopping mall in Ukraine. That could involve a massive loss of life. It clearly is a result of Russian missile strikes of some kind. Uh, We don't know whether the shopping mall was targeted. We don't know how it happened. Uh, But it is a great cause of concern here. And if it can be demonstrated that Russia attacked that mall deliberately, I think you're going to see very strong reactions from the leaders here. You will quickly see it labelled as a war crime and it will disrupt the final day's proceedings. When I think back to the 2021 G7 summit, there were really huge ambitions around ending the COVID pandemic. And it was a war on the virus and vaccines were the ammunition. And to a significant extent, there has been progress, but the war of Russia against Ukraine is not quite the same. The ambitions and the tactics are much more nuanced and much more complicated here. And so it feels smaller and it looks like we're gonna be in this war with Russia for a very long time. Ryan Heath, thank you so much for talking with me. It was a pleasure. I'm always happy to be on Dispatch. Also in the news, seven states are set to host primary elections today, and this week's could offer the first clues as to whether the Supreme Court's decision to strike down Roe makes a difference at the ballot box. Abortion is especially relevant in Colorado, where GOP voters are deciding whether to nominate Joe O'Day, a rare abortion rights-supporting Republican, for the U.S. Senate. And WNBA star Brittany Griner, who was detained in Russia on February 17th, just days before Russia invaded Ukraine, was ordered to stand trial on Friday by a court near Moscow on cannabis possession charges. Griner could face 10 years in prison if convicted on charges of large-scale transportation of drugs. Today's episode of Politico Dispatch included music composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Be sure to follow Politico Dispatch if you haven't yet, and if you can, leave us a rating and review. It helps more people find the show. I'm Annie Reese. Thanks so much for listening.